Hello, welcome to Talkin' Stories. I'm your host, Mari Talkin. In this podcast, we celebrate the power of stories to both shape and heal the world. These stories might be found within literature or film or politics or even within your own family. And that's where I'll start today. My guest is Janae Scott. She's a storyteller in her own right, and she's an avid story consumer. And she happens to be my little sister. Welcome, Janae. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. Yes, so I wanted to chat with you first, Janae, because you actually gave me the idea for the title of my podcast. Um, the day that uh, Janet Yellen was nom- was confirmed as the new Secretary of the Treasury, um, you sent me a text with like a link to the to the news story that she'd been um, confirmed, and mm-hmm. it's, your your text said. My first thought was Mari be talking, but Janet be yelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you had the best response because you said, well, sometimes I'd be yelling too, but no one be listening. <laughs> yeah. So it was a good, like, I told that joke several times, you know, to my family. They they heard it a bunch of times because I have no one else to talk to in the pandemic. So I'm like, hey, did you guys hear this uh, <laughs> This yeah. text message my sister and I had back and forth. We're very clever. We're very funny. Yeah, we crack ourselves up at least. But yes. yeah, then we found out, then I found out that um, Biden had made a joke about the fact that, you know, she's the first woman to be appointed to this position. And so he was like, you know, we need to have, we need to have a, a rap musical written about her in the style of Hamilton, who was the first ever secretary of the treasury in the United States. Um, and then this um, rap artist named Dessa, she did, she made a rap of, <laughs> and it's called, it's called um, Who's Yelling Now? Uh, mm-hmm. Which is really funny. So then we had to share that with each other. So. Who's yelling now? Who's yelling? Who's yelling now? Doves on the left, hawks on the right, cross talk in the flock, trying to fight mid flight. But here comes yelling with that inside voice. Never mind the mild manner, policies make noise. She's five foot nothing, but hands to God. She could pop a collar, she could rock a power bob. Bay Ridge represent Brooklyn's in the cabinet. Damn, Janet, go and get it. Fifth and life of president. She knows the kind of stimulus it takes to pass the I heard block. she called the house in Christ. She's qualified. It only took a couple centuries. The first female secretary of the treasury. Don't want no That's fantastic. Yeah, the fact that your last name is Talkin' is just prime for you to have a <laughs> podcast. You, like, even if you were uninterested in having a podcast, you should have done one anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not known as someone who um, is... is uh, Laconic, laconic, not talkative. Yeah, uh, Janae and I hail from a uh, large Mormon family. We have seven uh, siblings all together. Um, I'm third to the oldest. Janae is the baby of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting because I am, I'm a Gen Xer. Janae's a millennial, um, and yet we still get along. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's funny the. Uh... The interaction I when I tell people I'm like hey, I've I've got these older siblings that nobody's ever met. It's this. It's, that's how my whole life has been. Is I have a few siblings that people know I grew up with, and then I have like these you know these magical siblings that are just a little bit older. So it's always been a fun time for me. Right, because our oldest sister was 15 when you were born, mm-hmm. and so she was only home for a couple of of years before she was off to college. Yeah, um, I don't remember ever living with her. So she was about I was three when she left. So. Yeah, I don't remember, like, some of my earliest memories of her coming home from college. Right. By the way, our episode today is called Stories That Make Us Ugly Cry. And um, 
Janae and I come from, as we, as we mentioned, a big Mormon family. We have a lot of criers in our family. It's kind of our thing. Um, we do have some members of our family who are more what we would call stoic. Um, but a lot of us have, I think, inherited what I like to refer to as the cry gene. Um, my mom, our mom's uh, side of the family, the Hadfields, um, are definitely criers. And we have an aunt uh, who she used to like to joke that she only would cry at the really important events in life, such as Boy Scout parades and the openings of Kmart's. <laughs> it's very true. We can we can kind of cry at the drop of a hat. Yes. So uh, the night that you were born, Janae, you've heard this story before, but um, I was super excited to be eating this new sister. Uh, I, I think you were not necessarily uh, a planned event, but <laughs> you were still welcome, very much welcome. We were all super excited to, um, to uh, greet you. Um, our older sister, Lisa, and I were probably in, in locked in some sort of competition about who was going to be the best big sister to this <laughs> new baby. Of course, so this was 1984. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yep. Yes. My, 1984, no ultrasounds. And so we didn't know if mom was going to have a boy or a girl. So I, um, I remember I, I was 12. And I decided I was going to sleep in their bed um, because they had left for the hospital you know, um, in the early evening, and I was going to sleep in the beds in their bed, so that when Dad came back from the hospital after you were born, um, he would find me there and have to tell me what Mom had had. And my plan worked. <laughs> um, my devious plan worked. I remember I had these like I had I had gone to gotten into their bed with this like bag of like frozen cherries that I had gotten out of the freezer. Um, because, you know, again, big Mormon family, our mom did a lot of putting up of fruits and vegetables. Um, they call it putting up. It just means preserving, um, you know, bottling, freezing, dehydrating, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Canning. So I, that was my treat to wait. I tried to stay up. I tried to wait um, until he got home. But he got home at like 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. He was like, Mari, what are you doing <laughs> in our bed with a Ziploc bag of cherries? <laughs> But then, but then he told me that you were born and you were a girl and that you were you were one you were one of the fattest ones he'd seen. I think yeah. is what he said. You know, I that was a good story. I hadn't heard that before about the cherries, and so that was that's good. That's one of the great things about being the youngest. I I obviously don't remember anyone else being born, but you're all you know. The next sibling that's closest to me is also quite a bit older than me, so she's about six years older than me. So all of you remember me being born and no matter how old I get, you know, no matter what age I am, you guys tell me the, you know, stories of where you were when I was born. It makes me feel like, you know, some sort of celebrity. I was going to say like JFK, but that's kind of like a negative, you know, everyone remembers where they were the day JFK got shot. Well, everyone in my family remembers where they were when I was born. So that's super special for me that never gets old. Yeah. And then we proceeded to love you and torture you for many years after. Yes, true. But yeah. but you got you know, you get you get two sides. You get like torture, but then you also like get a lot of attention. So sometimes you're overwhelmed with like you know, I, I remember like putting on skits for you guys and doing little plays and singing little songs and like the entire family like clapping and being like, Yay, that's so fun and then it would be Janae, yeah. get out of here. We're <laughs> we're we're playing video games or so, whatever it was that everyone was doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think at one point mom said, um, that we were inhibiting your ability to speak. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you, do you remember this? Because oh, I do. You would, you would, 
you were we had this like we had this dining table that we you know it was like nine people my mom mm-hmm. my, my you know mom made you know meals for nine people you know two or three times a day and we would have this we had this long sort of like it was almost like a, an indoor picnic bench picnic mm-hmm. table and yeah. these two benches on either side and we would all sit on either side of this long table and then you would be in your high chair at the head of the table like a little queen um, and you would like point to things that you wanted and we would be like, she wants this, she wants this, like pass Janae this. And my mom was like, you guys, she's, so she, you would just like grunt yeah. and point to things. She's like, you guys, you got to let her talk. You got to let her talk for herself because mm-hmm. she's not learning how to talk because everyone's talking for her. Yeah. I, so I, it did take me a while to talk. I, it's funny that you say that. Cause I think, I think Lisa, so our oldest sibling told my kids that the, in one of these, like maybe a year ago, she told my kids that story and they just think that is the funniest thing i have two teenagers one's almost a teenager i have a 12 year old and a 15 year old and they picked up on this they glommed onto the story and now anytime i'm like hey can you hand me that if i can't like think of the word right away they're like uh, is it this da, 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 ah, ah, ah. like they, they make the noises like so lisa told the story yeah, that i would go ah, 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 and then they would pick something up and show it to me and i'd go uh uh-uh, not that one and so they'll do that too they'll pick it up and be like this one mom this one did you and i'm like no no i just can't think of the word it's the you know just grab me that pencil that's so funny yeah gotta be careful with the stories you tell your kids because they'll use them as ammo against you oh yeah my kid when you're like hey do you remember the story i'm like oh i'm living this story all the time yeah because my yeah. kids think that think that that was hilarious and i was like yeah yeah it was true the other thing about my speech growing up is i i don't know if this is true but Mom said when I did start talking, I, I used big words because I was around all of you. So she, But I didn't know the meaning of them. So I'd say, oh, it was a coincidence. And I didn't know what coincidence meant. I would just say it. Yeah. They're like, yeah. But, so she didn't speak. And then you did speak. And you used you, large words that you didn't know the meaning of. Yes. Well, history is repeating itself on my end of things because I have. So I live in a, I have a blended family. And um, my oldest daughter is 23 and my youngest daughter is um nine and then I have stepchildren who are older than my oldest daughter but um she so she the the nine-year-old Mia is around a lot of adult siblings Mm -hmm. um and she does the same thing where she just uses these like the other day she was like she was worried we were going to be caught in a in a traffic jam and she's like what kind of debacle is this (laughs) (laughs) what nine-year-old says debacle (laughs) debacle yeah, no. it's very funny. So um, again, so the topic today that we're going to that we're going to discuss is stories that make us ugly cry. Um, and I wanted to um, share with the our listeners, um, I think you and I have both decided that there are particular themes in stories that really um are really get to us um Mm -hmm. and it took us a while it took us a while to figure that out you know like I again in my in my family now I'm known as a crier and but you know like Max or Mia one of my other kids you know when when we're watching a movie together and something sad happens they they sort of look at me like are you gonna cry (laughs) are you gonna break down here come the waterworks and I'm like do you guys not understand by now I do not cry when things are sad. I cry when the little guy, the little person who has all of the odds st- stacked against them actually triumphs in the end. That's mm. when I can't, that's, that's what gets to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and your, your theme is a little different. The theme of yeah. what makes you cry. Yeah. I kind of, uh, you know, I, I believe that everyone has a theme that sort of, you know, because of your life circumstances or because of who you are as a personality, 
you know, obviously everyone will cry at, you know, a certain part of a movie that where they're trying to get you to cry. Some people will cry over that. But then there's other parts of movies that like I'll just lose it and it has nothing to do with even main, the main plot. But my theme is sort of around I have health problems. I have chronic fatigue syndrome. So my theme is especially if it's any sort of parent figure. It doesn't always have to be, but especially so of a parent who gives just all they have and has, you know, either it's enough or it's not enough or or they gave all they had and, and then they, they perished because they gave all they had. I mean, that, that you know, I'm done. Then I'm like, I'm baked, my goose is cooked, I'm crying, I'm bawling, I'm sobbing. Yeah. So it's, it's very revealing about um, ourselves. So um, I teach literature to high school students and I am always telling them we use literature as both windows and mirrors. Windows into the lives of others and mirrors that we hold up in front of ourselves. Um, which is, I think, a really useful way of thinking about literature and story. You know, you know, wor worthy stories, stories that have per have um, persisted throughout time and withstood, you know, um, the, the test of time, mm -hmm. because they speak in to us in some way about the human condition. Um, so let's talk about some um, some more particular specifics. Um, I was thinking. So a couple of little a couple of little anecdotes about um, our family and you and I in particular, Janae. Um, I was I was just thinking the I was just I just got through saying that I don't cry at the sad parts of movies, but I definitely do sometimes. Like as you mentioned, you know there are certain stories that get you no matter what. Um, but I do have uh, a story from my childhood in which apparently mom and dad took us to go see Bambi when it first came out. And I was pretty oh. young. So this is, this is before your time. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a distinct memory of dad carrying me out of the movie theater because I was bawling so mm. loudly that I was, it was disrupting the experience of the other movie, other movie goers. Um, <laughs> and they were kind of like tittering and laughing, you know, and, and feeling sorry for me. But yes, it was of course at the point when Bambi's mother dies. And um, I still, I still cannot watch that part mm. of the movie and I also cannot watch the part of in Dumbo where the yes. mother rocks him rocks Dumbo in her trunk oh. um, that's a, that's a killer yeah those old um, Disney movies are traumatizing my kids are like yeah. I, like my kids have never seen Pinocchio and I'm like you don't need to watch Pinocchio it's actually kind of scary this like big whale comes up and swallows them and it's actually like not very fun and yeah. then he gets like ripped away from his father and he goes to this weird yeah, island where he gets like all the boys get turned into donkeys like it's super scary yeah and the yeah they all get in they're all being bullied and like in and yes. tricked and like lured into this really dark situation Absolutely. yeah like yeah. bambi pinocchio and dumbo um i think my, i think my daughter saw dumbo at our mom's house at grandma's house and i was like oh my gosh i did not know she was going to show you that i wish you had never seen it and she was like it's horrible they ripped the elephant away from his mother and i was like i know i, I know i'm I know. sorry another thing another little story that i remember is um so again um Janae's 12 years younger than me. And um, when I was in my late 20s, I was living in Belgium. And Janae, was, you were still in high school, right? Mm -hmm. And you came over to visit us with mom and dad 
and our grandparents too, actually, which was a whole other, which is a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. Um, those are some good stories from there that we'll have to save those for like a funny stories yeah. that make us laugh. Those are some good ones. Yeah. Those are some really funny family stories. Um, but we, we took a long, we actually went over to England and, um, to visit. Once we got to London, we took a bus, they called it a coach. They call it a coach, coach. you know, long distance long distance buses from London to Stratford upon Avon. And we had, this is the before cell phones. We had no phones. We were sitting on this bus for three hours. And I was like, Janae, do you want to hear the story of Jane Eyre? (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, what? I'm like, there's this novel called Jane Eyre. So I told you this whole entire story of Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester, Mm -hmm. like blow by blow for like, but it was probably like an hour and a half. Like it probably, you know. Like, it took a long time to tell this story. I remember, <laughs> though. How... I was riveted. I remember being totally yeah. like, what? What The the wife in was the living attic? there the whole time in the attic? She set yeah. the house on fire? I was riveted. It was great. I totally remember that. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. And that was really fun. That's a fun memory. But And it also, you know, Jane Eyre is one of my favorite novels. And it, is, it, does, spe- it does speak to my theme, which is, you know, she had all of the odds stacked against her. She was small and plain and... Um, penniless and cast aside um, cast aside rejected by her family her, her aunt and uncle mm-hmm. um and um against all odds a rich and powerful man falls in love with her um but is not really worthy of her as it mm-hmm. turns out and has to go through his own sort of journey in order to become worthy of her because mm-hmm. even though she's even though she's small and powerless, she is she's very intelligent and she's very moral and upstanding. And and um, he has to sort of go through some sort of penance before he can be worthy of her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember you telling me that story of Jane Eyre. We did the blow by blow. And only as like an English professor, an English major can. After you were done telling the story, you're like, and now let's discuss some talking points and topics. And I remember that being your main <laughs> one of you're like, Mr. Rochester you know, the fire was like symbolic that he had to go through something that he was trying to hide his shameful life and that, you know, Jane Eyre had to, she she kind of came into some money. So she had to drum up some independence for herself before she could get married to him. And I was like, oh, interesting. You know, you had talking points after her that you're like, now let's discuss some <laughs> themes and topics from the book. And I was like, totally into it. I was like, yes, this is amazing. So I went home after that trip and I bought Jane Eyre and I read it and I, it, was my favorite book immediately and it was the only book in my whole life that I ever like I remember very clearly putting the last page down and then flipping the book over and opening it up and then just start immediately started reading again I didn't want it to end so I was like it's the I've reread a lot of books in my life but never stacked right on top of each other not even in the same sitting so I was like I love it I love it so much I really want to recreate that whole memory for my teenage daughter when she's 17 I don't know how I want you to come with us I want you to like come sit on the bus with us I want to go to Stratford upon Avon and be like it was such a great book too because I think I remember you saying like do you want me to tell you a story about the English Moors because we were going yeah. across the English Moors and I was like yeah mm, sure I guess like what 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 book are you talking about yeah. and that was the first time I'd ever yeah. heard of it I'd never heard of it yeah yeah that's a yeah that's great that and it would be you and, and Elle, your daughter, your 15-year-old daughter, have a really special relationship, too. So it would be mm-hmm. really fun to recreate that and, like, go through that um, again. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I've definitely reread Jane Eyre many times. And you learn – it's one of those books where you learn you learn new things every time you experience it. Mm-hmm. So it's not a sort of a static experience. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about a particular scene that has made you really break down – um, 
the reason I the re one of the reasons why I started thinking about this topic, you know, I of course stories are very important to me, um, literature is very important to me, films are very important to me. I think that we're living in a golden age of television right now because there's there's so many platforms and so many so much good material and you know excellent writing going mm -hmm. on right now in terms of television. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had finished watching this TV series called um, Normal People. And it's um, it's it's like a BBC. Uh, the, let me let me think. This I think it's called Screen Ireland um, collaboration, and it's the story of two people that starts that starts off. In high, in, they're in high school. Um, Conlon and or sorry, Connell and Marianne, and it starts off in high school. And they're very different um, socioeconomic. Um, they're in different socioeconomic classes. It's funny because she is of a of a high socioeconomic status. Her her mom has her parents have a lot of money. They live in a mansion on the side of the hill. It's, it's set takes place in a, a fictional um, town in Ireland in the county of Sligo, um, and she has she so she lives in this mansion, but she has no friends. She's a social outcast. He he lives with his single mom. She actually is the house cleaner for Marianne's mother. Um, and he's very popular. And he has he plays rugby and he has a ton of friends. And the two of them kind of fall in love, but they hide their relationship um, because he's kind of convinced her that that's, the, that's, that's what they should do because he doesn't want his friends to find out that he's dating her because they kind of bully her. Mm -hmm. um, and then they go to college and that situation is turned on its head. They both go to Trinity College in in Dublin and she suddenly has come into her own. She's very intelligent and she's gotten into this big group of really smart friends and he's alone and he doesn't he's not playing rugby anymore and and so the power dynamic has completely shifted. Um, but when I got to the end of the series, I was like sitting in my bed watching it on my laptop with my earphones on. And I just, when I got to the very last scene, the very last things these two characters say to the, each other, I just started bawling. I just mm. had tears pouring down my face. And Eric was like, what is happening? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just, he's like, he's like, you know, try to, he was like, tell me, tell me what the story is about. And I'm like, you just have to watch it. You can't like, yeah. it's not like, it's not actually not like Jane Eyre where you can like go through plot point by plot point And it's like very compelling. It's just mm -hmm. these two people who are highly intelligent um, they can talk about all kinds of esoteric things, but they cannot communicate with each other about basic emotional, their basic emotional needs mm -hmm. until the end. And that's, that's what got me. Like, yeah. so. Well, I actually have something to tell you. You talked about this and I started watching it. So I know exactly mm -hmm. what you're talking about. I just got to the part. I didn't just, but I like now she's at college, they're at college together and he just got reintroduced to her. He gets reintroduced to her at a party. He doesn't even know that she's there. So, and I, like it I actually had to take a break from it because it is so compelling and it's so absorbing like I I get the appeal because I, I just watched one episode and at first I was kind of like there's very little dialogue there's like just yeah. skimpy dialogue I've never watched something that had so little dialogue in fact unless it was like a quiet place which that movie is about they don't ever speak so it, they do such a good job of like you know, the body language, the looking at each other, the situation is the storyline. And, and, you know, I, I actually had to like take a little break. So, so absorbed in it. 
I was basically tell, telling the family, like, nobody bother me. I'm watching normal people. And then Bo was kind of like, my husband Bo was kind of like, uh, you know, maybe you take a break from the normal people because you're getting a little obsessed. And I was like, okay, I'll take a break. And then, but I've got to go back to it. I'm so, I got to find out what happens. You're becoming abnormal by watching normal, normal people. Yeah. But it's, it's like a, it's, I just, the small amount of dialogue reflects their relationship. They don't talk to each other. They say so little to each other. They you just want them to just say something, just say something about how you actually feel and they just, yes. they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't. And you're like, oh, you're just on yes. hooks. You just want to yell through the screen. Like, just say yes. something. Just say anything. Yes. And it gets worse in terms of them missing each other. Mm. In terms of cross-talking or not talking. Not talking enough to each other. that they It becomes like these, there's heartbreaking moments in there where, just, where it's like that, that sense of frustration that you have as a viewer is heightened. But yeah. it's also very, it's also very truthful, you know, about people who are, you know, um, they, you know, they, they, they start off in high school, they're very immature. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's very believable that these are the kinds of, um, non-conversations that you would have with someone that you care deeply about. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it also asks you as a viewer to do a lot of work because you're like, wait, 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 what's going on? Like what, Mm -hmm. you know, because they don't know what's going on. And so you have to do a lot of work to try to like, as, as you said, like, you know, figure out based on body language and, and looks and, you know, what's happening in the physical world. Mm-hmm. So, so what are some of your, those moments for you? Well, I'm sure I'm going to lose it at normal end of normal people. Cause I'm feeling that, that definite sense of tension for that. That's why I had to take a break. I could feel it coming on that. I was like, I'm becoming too absorbed. I'm too like invested that I was like, whatever happens at the end, I'm, I'm going to start attacking people. Cause I'm like too excited about what is going to happen. So yeah. I mean, so one for me that's a big one, that's probably like the biggest hitter is Harry Potter. I know a lot of people are like, Harry Potter is a kid's book. How could you actually glean some sort of life meaning from it? But I disagree. I think there's a lot to be learned from Harry Potter. Uh, it's one of my favorite series. I just have to admit it. I have a dog named Dobby, a little chihuahua. So I'm very much a Potterhead. I love it. But there is a scene in the books. It does, never happens in the movies. So if you're someone who's who likes Harry Potter but you've never read the books you got to read the books it's just so much more happens but there's a scene that uh where um Harry Potter's at the hospital visiting Ron Weasley's dad and they go into another uh part of the hospital to sort of um give the dad a break and they find a schoolmate's in the hospital with them, Neville Longbottom is in the hospital and he's there with his grandmother. And they're like, what are you doing here? And he's, he's totally ashamed. You can tell that he's, he's like, oh my gosh, my classmates are here. And they're like, what are you doing here? And come to find out he's visiting his parents who have been tortured into insanity by Bellatrix Lestrange. And they are, they're not comatose, but they're sort of catatonic. They don't speak and they sort of recognize Neville, but not really. And it's just totally heartbreaking but it totally hits on my, what hits on my theme is that as they're leaving, Neville's mother comes over and gives him a gum wrapper. And his grandmother, who's kind of a harsh woman, says, oh, Neville, whatever she's giving you, just throw it in the trash. And he says, okay, grandma. And he actually secretly pockets it. And that's just, that's my scene. That's my theme in a nutshell of, you know, even someone who, a mother who's tortured in insanity is trying to give her son 
the only thing she has, even if it's a gum wrapper, and for him to recognize, my mother is giving me, it's not just a gum wrapper, it's love. And for him to put it in his pocket, just tears me up inside. And then, of course, my children, <laughs> like, I have these stories of my children who roast me all the time, but this is, you know, this is something we do in my family, but it's not exactly a roast, but I told them this story once, and I, you know, I was bawling, telling them, I was like, you know, I, I'm a mother who gives all she has, and it's not always enough, but sometimes I only have gum wrappers to give. And then my children started giving me gum wrappers and then they started writing little notes on it, which would make me lose it in the middle of the grocery store because they would just be eating gum and they would write, I love you on the gum wrapper. They would hand it to me and I'd, you know, I'd be like, oh, you guys, you're so mean that you're making me cry in the grocery store. But I've kept all those gum wrappers. I put them in a little keepsake box and they just, they have little notes in them of, I love you. Hi, mom. How's it going? They're just, they're little notes, but... It's very sweet of them that they they recognize my my theme is, you know, giving what you can give, even if it's very little. And the and the receiver recognizing the the preciousness of the gift of the yeah. of the gift, that's really sweet. That's really touching, and it because of course the gum wrappers are symbolic. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not gum wrappers. They're they're love. They're so. little yeah. They're love. Yeah. Whatever you have to give. Yeah, I actually have a scene from um, Harry Potter as well from the movies, um, The Goblet of Fire. And um, I, this probably is one that um, gets you as well as a parent. Um, you probably know which one I'm talking about. It's the scene with um, Cedric Diggory and um, Harry have gone, have been pulled through the maze, you know, to the the cemetery uh, where Voldemort is waiting for them and he's going to you know, kill them both, he thinks. He, he succeeds in killing Diggory. Um, it does not succeed in killing Harry because Harry has this, you know, because of the wands um, sort of being matched in terms of their strength. Um, and so Harry brings um, Cedric's body back to the Triwizard Tournament, you know, the stadium where everyone is gathered and they're all watching and they don't understand. They think they all start to cheer, right? Because they thought they think that um, Harry has su- succeeded in his um, in his in his quest, but they don't understand that he has brought Cedric's body back. A boy's just been killed. The body must be moved, Dumbledore. Too many people. Let me through. Let me through! Let me through. That's my son! This is my boy! The fact that they're, that they're all cheering, which is horrifying, because we as, as an audience know that... Um, it's really a tragedy that we're witnessing. Um, and Harry is hunched over Cedric's body saying, don't touch him, don't touch him. I had to bring him back. Um, he says to Dumbledore, who's one of the first to arrive, um, you know, I couldn't leave his body there. And then what gets me is Cedric's father, whose name is Amos D- Diggory, 
comes out of the stands and is the camera sort of following him. It's pushing through the crowd of onlookers um, as if we're we're seeing things from the point of view of Cedric's father. And he realizes that what he's witnessing is is his his son's body. Um, And he and he just says, my boy, my boy, that's my son. The sort of inarticulate anguish, you know, Mm. of of a parent whose worst nightmare has come to be. So oh, absolutely. Um, that, that every time, too. every time. Yeah. I have a 12 year old son who will also, he also has picked up on that. I cry at that part and will also randomly shout out to me. That's my boy. That's my son. Cause it, you know, he's my son and he's trying yeah. to get me to cry. And then I'm angry. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I'm not going to cry on cue, but he thinks that's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Just some gentle trolling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He, he's got to He's got to get a roast in on his mom, but Oh, yeah. that, that actor, that, that slurring of speech, that anguish, he kind of like does something with his hands, but he, he kind of just, I'm imitating it. I can't really explain it, but he does something inarticulate with his hands, with his voice. That feeling of out of body is, is for every parent. I mean, I always wonder if that actor has had some real life experience with that because he just killed it. It was every time I watch it, it is so raw. It's so real. Yeah. His name is Jeff Rawl. The actor who plays Amos Diggory. But yeah. And he's, you know, it's his part in the movie is quite small. But that scene is, I think, for every parent is like some sort of touchstone mm-hmm. when it comes to, you know, what it would what it would feel like to experience that. Yeah. And if I could, I was, that just reminded me of another scene. And if I could flip it on its head, there's another, there's a scene in Hook where the kids go off to Never Neverland. The parents, the mother especially, is left by herself. And at the very end, the kids come back. You know, as a kid, that scene made no sense to me. Or, you know, I, I was happy that the kids came back. But now, especially that actress, when she sees her kids, her first look on her face isn't happiness. It looks like anguish. But it's an it's a happiness that is so high that it's she looks pain. She's pained by it. And I was yeah. like, that that hits me home, too, where I'm like, as a parent, that's how it would feel. If your kids got kidnapped and they came back, you would feel a level of happiness that might actually be anguish, pain, or, you know, a level of happiness that's actually pain. <laughs> so Yeah, and also I think she thinks that she's seeing things. And she she yeah. can't believe her own eyes. And the anguish is like, is this real? Yeah. You know, but have, have, have I... Too. Have I have I dreamed them into being here because I've wanted it so badly? Yeah, and she kind of like falls to the ground, like falls to her knees, and like she has to touch them mm-hmm. to to believe, you know. Yeah, that scene yeah. as an adult that'll get me that'll tear me up a little bit. Yeah, and you um had the, have had the experience in the recent past of reading for the first time in your thirties, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird with L, yeah. and yeah. um. And you have a particular scene in that, that again, it's, it, it may be sort of a more, like a, it's a subplot. It's not the main storyline, right? The main mm-hmm. storyline is the, is the um, Atticus Finch and the Tom Robinson trial. But what was the scene you wanted to talk about in particular with To Kill a Mockingbird? And what was the experience of reading it kind of along with your daughter? Yeah, it was, was a, it was a great experience. I mean, doing remote, you know, remote learning is difficult in a lot of ways, but in some ways it's really wonderful that I get to, you know, my daughter brought home To Kill a Mockingbird, and actually I thought I had read it. I was, I just assumed that I had read it. It's just been so many years since middle school, high school. I was like, oh, I've read this. I'll help you with your, with your remote learning. And 
she was like, I have like a million questions to answer. I have like essays to write on. I was like, great, I'll help you. This is going to be awesome. I start reading it and I'm like, I have never read this before. I had no idea. So I start reading it and I, you know, reading it in my 30s, I think I actually got more out of it than I did if I'd read it at 15. It was so, so good. I mean, it, it's the great American novel. It definitely deserves that title. It was so absorbing. I was so excited. And then my daughter was actually loving it as much as she I was. And she got a little bit ahead of me because she had to stay a pace with school. And I kind of fell behind doing other stuff. So she was like, she would come and just like sit and stare at me and say, like, are you there yet? And I'd be like, don't tell me. And she's like, I'm, I'm like, you don't even tell me that because I don't know something's coming. And she's like, okay, as soon as it hits you, as soon as you get it, you you come tell me. I don't care if I'm in class I, I will come out and talk to you. Or I'm so I I really want you to. So the scene that she wanted that she was so excited for me to watch here was the jail scene where they come to lynch him, and that was a very powerful scene. But it didn't make me cry. But there was a side story of how a neighbor, Mrs. Dubose, who's I I think she's only mentioned in the book a couple of times, and then she has a little bit of a story, and then her story's over. But I was um, you know I got the audiobook so that I could catch up to her. And so I was listening to it on my AirPod and our poor husbands, I mean, you already had a story about Eric came in while you were watching Normal People. I mean, I had the same experience. This was only a couple weeks ago and I'd gotten a grocery order delivered and I was, you know, had my headphones in. I was going to listen to Kill a Mockingbird. And um, did I already call it How to Kill a Mockingbird? I think I just said that. Yeah. <laughs> accidentally. We keep accidentally calling it How to Kill a Mockingbird on accident. As if it's a how-to book, yeah. As if it's a how to kill one in, one's innocence, you know, line one, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a manual. Um, so I'm putting my groceries away, and uh, Mrs. Dubose is dying. And uh, it's, let's see, Jem, uh, she basically verbally assaults Jem when he's walking past her house, and Jem loses it and, like, ruins her yard and, like, messes up her mailbox and... You know, at first I was kind of like, as a parent, I was kind of like, why is this other adult verbally assaulting children on the street? If that were me, I would go down there and tell this neighbor what is what, like, to leave my kids alone. And Atticus is very like, oh, Jem, you, you need to make recompense. You need to go over there. You feel like kind of that there's injustice for the child, that you're like, why should he have to go over there? She started it. This old woman started it. So he goes over to read to her every day. She sets a timer. She reads... And then he leaves, and every day she sets the timer farther and, like, longer and longer. And Jem tells his dad, like, she's setting this timer longer. And so finally Atticus, it come, you come to find out that Atticus is like, I, I'm making up her will. She's dying. And she's had cancer, and she's been addicted to heroin. And she came to me and said, I will be beholden to no one in this world, um, not even a chemical. And so I'm going to kick it. And he was like, if she hadn't if she hadn't gotten you to read to her every day, I would have sent you down there. And I mean, I was just losing it because it was the bravery of this woman, the, you know, the, her, you know, she didn't have to do this. She could have, you know, ended her life staying on the morphine, but she had so little to give. She had so little and she was going to just, you know, for her own, her own will, she was going to leave her life free you know, free from anything, you know, free from any handicap. And Atticus says, um, I, I wanted you children to see what true bravery was like. And I, I was, 
crying over these red peppers. I remember like just picking them up. I had this big bottle of red peppers and I'm bawling over these red peppers. I cannot put them in the fridge. I'm just standing there holding them. And my husband comes upstairs and is trying to talk to me. He doesn't see that I have my AirPods in. I'm turned away from him and I just kind of like turn around, look, in, look to him and I'm like, I'm reading To Kill a Mockingbird. And this part's really good. He was like, say no more. And he just like walked out <laughs> of the room. He was like, it's okay. Yeah. I was like, thank you. Thank you. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm having an episode in our kitchen over our produce yeah. So I texted just, you. Just need, just need a moment. Just need a moment. Yeah. I just, I just need a moment. Like, please. Like, he was just like talking about plans or something. And I was like, not, not the time. I am having an emotional moment. Yeah. And There's so, so I, many. I texted there... you and was like, Mari, Mrs. Debose dies, and she was so yeah. brave. Yeah. That and I had, you know, I've, I've read To Kill a Mockingbird many times, but you know, that's a subplot. That's a small part of the, of the story. But it it spoke to you in particular, and it's like unforgettable for you. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this is what great literature does. This is what great stories do. They they give individual readers what they need, mm-hmm. um, even if even if most readers don't need that particular thing. I mean, what you're describing is a very compassionate look at addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of blaming her for becoming addicted in the first place, or you know. Um, or like judging her for being weak or judging her for being like kind of stupid because like, why not just stay addicted to morphine if you're dying of cancer? Um, Why, you know, but for her, it was really important for her. It was important to leave the world free from any restrict, you know, like chains, you know, Mm -hmm. metaphor, metaphorical chains. Um, And what a great lesson for Atticus to teach his children about compassion and about, what what true bravery is um mm-hmm. so yeah that's really now i want to go back and, and my, read that yeah it's it's yeah and my 15 year old daughter i was trying to you know she was so excited for me to see the lynching mob and but that happens before and so i was telling her i was like oh my gosh the part with mrs Debose, i just lost it. i was crying and she was like she was confused she was like I, what i don't even remember that part <laughs> and i was like you don't yeah. remember like it's not a short like it's a few pages it's not just but it's not too yeah. short you should have remembered and she i was like well you need to go back and read it and she, but it what i'm saying is like it just didn't hit her enough to even register for her to even remember it very well but yeah for me it was the crying over the red peppers moment so yeah and it does speak to um our our world today we have you know an opioid addiction crisis in this country mm-hmm. and you know so we have to do something about um the the problem of addiction and so this 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 book was published. To Kill a Mockingbird was published in 1960, and you know addiction has always been part of the human condition. But um, with the crisis that's happening today in this country, I think that 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 theme is even more relevant, or is as relevant as as it's ever been. So yeah, and I mean, there's even um, another part in the book that I you know it wasn't it was more relevant to me, and it was something I I could not understand why I was thinking about it and it was after the lynch mob scene Atticus is being very forgiving of the lynch mob and his kids are kind of like they were there to hurt you like they were there to hurt Tom Robinson to kill him and probably hurt you and possibly kill you too and the kids are sort of like what how could you let them off the hook and he said I'm not letting them off the hook he says you know this these words kept ringing in my ears where he says mobs everywhere are made of people people everywhere and I, it kept ringing in my head for several days, and I could not. I was kind of like sick of it. I was kind of like, brain, stop saying the words. The mob, the mob is made of people. 
And then I realized I was like, I, I'm trying to, my brain is trying to process the capital lynch, not the lynch mob, <laughs> the capital mob that entered the capital on January 6th. And I, you know, I was very upset. I didn't want to see them as people or as individuals. And, you know, then to read Mock to Kill Mockingbird, I read it about that a few weeks after. And I was like, that's what my brain is trying to do. My brain is trying to marry, it's trying to send me a message of these people are still people and they still have loved ones and they still have, you know, I want them to be monsters, but they just aren't. No one is. Yeah. And so that was a way that I was like, wow, Harper Lee, you know, wrote this in the sixties. She would have had no idea that there was going to be a mob at the Capitol, but it was still so relevant for me to help me, you know, to have empathy. Right. Because, um, both of those situations, the, the would, the would be lynch mob, um, of, to kill a mockingbird, which they're diffused by an eight-year-old scout who um, reminds them of their individuality and of their humanity in the moment. And it's a very, I, the reason that Elle wanted, the reason I think that it was so important to Elle and that she wanted to talk to you about it is because it, it is a scene where innocence defeats, you know, evil and menace. Mm -hmm. um, and just by being innocent, she's able to remind these would-be lynchers that, um, this is not who they are and mm -hmm. this is not this is not the right thing to do um but in both she in, herself in the, doesn't know she's diffusing them right she's just talking to them as if they're human beings mm -hmm. individuals talking about their loved ones talking about their their farms um mm -hmm. but yeah and i think you know with the capital insurrectionists um of january 6th and um the scene in to kill a mockingbird we, we are able to understand, you know, that they are, um, that they have been sort of, the members of this mob, both of these mobs have been duped by their society into believing that something that is not true is true, you know, mm -hmm. that Tom Robinson is, is guilty of the crime that he's been accused of, which is raping a, a woman. It's not true. Or that, you know, that it's their job to have some sort of, to enact some sort of vigilante justice you know, not true. Same thing with the insurrectionists at the Capitol, that they had been duped into believing that the election of 2020 had been fraudulent and um, and that they were the only ones who could right that that grave wrong. Also not true. So it is, it's, you know, the, I think, I think one of the thing, themes that the to Kill a Mockingbird speaks to in that moment is the power of rhetoric, the power of um, societies creating the certain belief and what people do with that belief can be very dangerous. You know, mm -hmm. a, a belief that is factually inaccurate, um, but it's being weaponized in some way. In addition to, um, to Killing Mockingbird, um, I wanted to talk about... Um, well, maybe maybe you should talk about it first. Talk about um, the movie Logan and how oh, that yeah. affected you. Oh yeah, Logan. You would not think that this movie would be a big tearjerker. It is part of the X Men franchise. It's sort of the ending of the character Logan, who is Wolverine and played by Hugh Jackman. And uh, so the movie, without giving any spoilers, I watched this movie. I'm super into fantasy. Love everything fantasy. So. But I was sort of like, I didn't care to see this movie in the theaters um, because it was rated R. It was sort of like um, jarring for the rest of the genre. 
they're mm-hmm. always PG-13 movies, so I was sort of, like, put off by, I was like, why is this one rated R? Is it going to be, like, super gory or something? It's sort of not, not that I have anything against rated R, I just was like, ah, that's sort of, like, not in the theme of the rest of the fantasy movies. But it came out on HBO, so I was like, oh, you know, I'll watch it when it's on HBO. So I watched it, and I was kind of like, huh, that was sort of a weird, depressing movie. Like, it's just sort of dark and weird, and and uh, watched it and didn't think much of it. And then my daughter, who I'm super close with, one day, like, I, I'd say it was probably a year between watching it again, was like, oh, let's watch a movie. Let's watch Logan. And I was like, okay, I've already seen it, but let's watch it. We'll sit down have a mother-daughter night, we'll watch it. It was just the two of us snuggled up in my bed and watching it on my TV in my bedroom. And we were watching it, we got to this one part that I was like, you know what, This one of these characters whispers something at this one part, and I didn't catch it the first time. Do you mind if I rewind it and put on subtitles to see what he said? Did you catch it? And she's like, no, I didn't catch it. So rewound it, and you hear this whispered word, and it totally changes the tra- trajectory of the entire movie, the rest of the movie. I immediately lose it and start sobbing the, for the rest of the movie. I mean, it happens maybe two-thirds of the way through. Maybe it's not quite halfway. But it hit upon my theme especially. It was something is whispered. I, I don't want it you know, reveal too much. So you're going to have to go back. <laughs> if you're out there, watch Logan. It's definitely a worthwhile movie. It's definitely so incredibly moving it speaks to a lot of themes it speaks to a lot of like real things that happen in the world so even if you're not a huge fan of fantasy this is like a huge human condition movie and it really speaks to like the real uh you know i'm trying not to say any words that will give it away but so we heard it and my daughter wasn't crying she was kind of looking at me and i was just sobbing through the rest of the movie and then she went into her bathroom And I heard her crying, sobbing so hard in her bathroom, and she was like 14. And I went in there, she was on the floor sobbing, and she was crying so hard that I was like, did someone bully at you school? Did you just break your leg? What, like, tell me. And she couldn't couldn't get any words out. She was sobbing so hard. So I'm like, I'm panicking. I, I don't know what to do. I'm like, should I, you know, pick her up and, like, take her to the hospital? Like, that is the level of crying that was happening. And she's a pretty stoic person herself. And so I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I'm just, I'm just cuddling her on this bathroom floor. And she's sho- sho- sobbing and shaking. And she gets out one word and she says, Logan, Aww. Logan. And I was like, oh, the movie. And I was like, you kept it all inside. And she was like, I didn't want to cry in front of you. And so I just held it all in until I could get into the bathroom after the credits rolled. And I was like, well, why can't you cry in front of me? She's like, I just can't. You're like that. I can't do it. <laughs> and I was like, but, you know, I... I was sobbing, like, you could have sobbed with me. It doesn't, you know, how was I going to judge you when I was already crying? And She's just trying it, to distinguish herself from, from mom. Yeah, yeah, she was trying to, she was trying to be strong. She was trying to be like, oh, you know, mom's the weepy one in the family. I don't do that. Yeah. But, I mean, if you, if it can have that effect on my 14-year-old, I think definitely you should watch the movie. And you should turn on the subtitles if you hear any whispered words. So, yes. totally change the movie. The, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, well... Boo, this movie was kind of a downer. Well, I'm very intrigued, uh, so I'm going to have to go back and watch it. I have not seen it. Yeah, I wonder if it's, is it still, I might have, maybe it's still on HBO, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to check it out. But Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, they're basically the only two characters in it, and they just kill it. They did a fantastic job. It's, it's, it's so good. I'm a huge Hugh Jackman fan. I'm a huge uh, Patrick Stewart fan, so... I, I got to go back and watch that. 
Yeah, they, they did a good job. Yeah. It's a, and if you want specifics, it's something that Patrick Stewart says. He whispers something. Okay. That All if right. you don't catch it, the movie's a dud. Okay, well, I'll ha- I'm sold. I'll have to go back and watch that. Yeah. But, you know, speaking of mother-daughter um, moments, you know, it's interesting because, um, of course, you know, I was, I was t- talking earlier about how we use stories as windows as, and as mirrors, but as, there's also something about a shared experience because, you know, what might be a window for us or might be a, w- a mirror for us is not necessarily going to be the, that for someone else that we are watching the story with. Um, mm-hmm. But um, it could be something else. But having that shared experience with someone else um, really, I mean, that's, that's another really, really important part of stories and the power of stories is how it can sort of build um, a bond with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, like I belong to a kind of a self-proclaimed nerdy um, story um, Facebook, private, private Facebook group um, called The Corner with a K. I don't know why that's just what we call it, but it started off, you know, being a, a game of Thrones, um, Facebook group. And now it's now that the game of Thrones is over. The, the, T, the HBO series is over. We still talk about all kinds of, um, other stories that were in films and books that we're reading, but like I've not, I've not met, um, these people in real life. I don't think I've met any of them in real life. Um, but I really feel like a kinship with these people because we talk about, films and tv stories so much um and you really you really get to know a person based on what speaks to them and what their um ideas are in in relation to a particular story and um we have a lot of fun yeah Yeah. and I was thinking you know um so my daughter my youngest daughter is nine and she um you know I told the story about having to be carried out of the movie theater as a child, I was younger than her. I think I was around five when that ha- when Bambi came out. Um, but you know, I also you know as a kid was very um, touched by stories about animals. Um, I can remember when I was in fourth grade, um, my teacher reading to us, you know, in installments every day for a certain amount of time, um, where the red fern grows. Um, you know, this the the book about the boy who um adopts two two hounds um Mm -hmm. and what transpires and I can remember (laughs) I can remember when we got to the end of the book it's a very sad ending um very touching Uh, I was crying but I looked over at a boy in my class um who I had a crush on and he had, you know, those the desks that you, you you had you pull the 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 top of the desk open, you know. Oh yeah. Um, he had he had the top of his desk open, and he had his head underneath the top of the desk, and he was just bawling. He was hiding. Ugh. He was hiding under the desk. So even so, that made me like like him even more because he was a sensitive soul like I was. Um, but yeah, um, Mia, who is nine now, she and I just watched uh, the. Um, my octopus teacher mm-hmm. and um, that is she 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 clued in straight away that this was going to be a sad story mm. because octopi or octopuses um, they only live for a year and there was like a countdown um, on the documentary that was that she clued in very quickly that it was going to be a year's time was going to mm. pass and so she knew what was coming um, but she was very invested in that story. And I, she and I both sort of cried together, you know, um, because it's a story about a man 
his name is Craig Foster, and he um, he kind of becomes disconnected from his life and um, his the relationships in his life, and he finds solace and he finds connection with an octopus um, in a um, kelp forest in Africa, off the coast of Africa. Um, and it, it's got gorgeous, gorgeous scenery and gorgeous filming, but it's the relationship between this man and this wild creature that is so stunning. And, and the way that the filmmakers are able to um, depict this, uh, this wild creature's personality, like a distinct personality, like you feel like you know this, this creature, um, and, it's, and it's an individual. It's not just any octopus, it's this octopus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, is, that was a really. It's really special. Yeah, that I've seen that. That is really good. But speaking and speaking of themes, I did not watch that with my daughter, because her theme is she she will absolutely lose it if an animal dies in a movie, and it doesn't matter if it was the main character, if it was a side character. She does not watch anything with puppies on the cover, nothing like that. And so she and I were discussing. I was like, "Well, what's your theme? What does it hit on?" She's like, "Definitely, if there's an animal that dies." And I was like, well, what is it about an animal that is so difficult? And she was like, well, they're so, you know, we kind of had to talk. And she was like, uh, well, actually, I was me that I was like, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, killing the vulnerable. You, you want, you don't want the vulnerable to die. That's what an animal is, that they're totally beholden to, uh, you know, a human, you know, a human can either, you know, kill them or nurture them to live. And they're at our mercy, and they're they're they sh- they're the most vulnerable. They show the the vulnerable vulnerableness inside of us. And she was like, "Yeah, that yeah. that feels right." So I was like, "Oh, that was very you know." This was like an interesting conversation to find something out about my daughter. That that's that's what will really destroy her. And she had a moment like you did with a movie that I showed her when she was little, thinking I didn't think a thing of it. I didn't know she was gonna cry. But I showed her the never-ending story, and oh man, the, there's a horse that oh, dies. Oh, there's a scene in... That horse. Oh, oh yeah. Artak. Yeah. Artaks? I remember yep. being, like, really super sad about it, but I showed it to her. I kind of walked out of the room. I came back in, and she wasn't just crying. She was, like, six. She was howling. She was yep. totally howling, tears running down her face. And I was like, whoa, that was your Vietnam. Like, I was like, that was... <laughs> <laughs> that was like the hardest thing she'd ever been through in her six years. And to this day, she's like, I will not watch Never Ending Story, never again. She's 15. And she's like, no. I cannot stand the horse sinking into the mud. And I was like, yeah, that, that is a pretty traumatizing yeah, part. Yes, it is. And it's funny because people my age, you know, that was their childhood mm-hmm. trauma. That was their child, you know, that that's the Gen Xers child, childhood Even, trauma. Yeah, my generation too, um, I see memes on it of the horse in the mud and people are like, did this, yeah. if this scene didn't traumatize you, then you are not actually human. <laughs> I'm like, yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we're sort of revisiting it yeah. now. Because that is, we were talking about that at the, at, earlier about how some of these, some of these movies that were, you know, designed and marketed for kids were very traumatic. Yeah. Well, even so, the Redfern grows that yeah. used to be like, you know, it's considered a children's book. And if you've ever read it, you're like, oh yeah. my gosh, like, why do we have children read this book? It should not be elementary grade reading. It is so traumatizing. Yeah. yeah. But it is, it is, I think, um, like with the octopus teacher, my octopus teacher, you know, as, 
maybe this is because I'm adult. I'm an I'm an adult and I can see the bigger picture. But it is about celebrating the life as mm-hmm. well as being as the sadness when the life ends or when the tragedy happens. It's it's you know, you know he Craig Foster talks about th- this octopus living a life that was you know live fa- live fast die mm-hmm. young, um, and um, of course that is resonant in a lot of ways, but. Um, you know, children are very empathetic, especially towards animals. And so we have to sort of be careful in terms of, um, we want them to, we want them to have the empathy and to build the empathy, but we don't want them, we don't want them to be traumatized. Yeah. So yeah, Elle, Elle can't handle yeah. it. She like, I watched that by myself. Cause I, I was like, um, this is about an animal and maybe I'll preview it first. And then I was like, mm, Elle, you don't need to watch it. So I actually told her the storyline. I told her all the important parts. I was like, this is really beautiful. She saw a little bit of the middle part. So she saw the octopus and I was like, but you know, you, you don't need to watch it all the way because it, it, it does end kind of sadly. And she was like, okay, I'm good. I like just you telling me yeah. about it is, is perfect. And I was like, but it was, it is really good. It's surprisingly good. Yeah. And it's a natural death. It's not, you know, it's not because of any kind of intervention on the human's part or because of a, pre- a you know, predator situation. Mm-hmm. So still sad though. So um, one of the other movies that I wanted to talk about was um, one that I have seen recently, um, Jojo Rabbit, which was written and directed by Taikai Watiti. I think I'm saying that name correctly, who is a New Zealand, um, New Zealander. He's a writer. He's a, he's a um, director. And he also is, he's also an actor. He plays in this movie, um, an imaginary version of Hitler. So this is this is a movie that's set in the um, Second World War. Um, it's about a ten-year-old boy who has become a a zealot for um, the Nazi youth. In terms of um, he's been inducted into and propagandized, and it's it's a it's a comedy. It's very funny. It's it shows the, all of the ridiculous and absurd goings on. Um, in terms of how the, how the Nazi propaganda worked, it's got a lot of slapstick humor. It's got a lot of, of physical humor in it as well. Um, Scarlett Johansson plays Jojo's mother and she's very energetic and very, she's, she's trying to sort of entertain him at various times. Um, she's, you know, she's, she's part of the resistance, um, in Nazi Germany, but she's, um, she loves her son and she's kind of, you know, she's saddened by the fact that he's been inducted into the Nazi youth um I think the I think the father is has 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 died um and come to find out Jojo who has been um who has been um led to believe that Jewish people are evil um find discovers that his mother has been hiding a Jewish girl in their home for some time and um it it becomes this very touching story about um what happens when you when you meet a member of the enemy and they are a human being like you are and um you fall in love with them um and how that that deprograms jojo and at one point, Elsa, the girl, says to him, "You know, you're not, you're not, a, you're not a Nazi." He's like, "Yes, I am. I have the swastika. I have the, you know," and she's like, "That's not who you are." And 
and that's really the theme of the story is he he's a child um and he is a compassionate child he refuses to engage in the the violence and the um even the even the, the metaphorical violence you know that has been weaponized against him in and all of the, the the German people in terms of the propaganda, he he he's he has to unlearn that as well. So, I I wanted to talk about that movie because um, I think that the comedy aspect of it is really interesting. It's you know you're laughing. I don't I don't like to watch war movies. I I'm like oh that's in terms of like that's one thing's like I'm not I I can't I can watch them. It's okay. I can do it, but um, I prefer not to. I prefer not to watch um, war movies because they um, they affect me too strongly and I, I can't sleep um, for days after. But this one is a it's a comedy and it opens you up emotionally so that when you get to the tragic parts of the story, and of course there are tragic parts of the story, um, you you can feel it that much more. Um, it opens you up and and um, makes you laugh, and then and then you your guard is down for when the tragic parts come. And I think it's really brilliant actually. Yeah. Jojo rabbit is so fantastic. It's a movie unlike I've ever seen in that it's a really good comedy and it's a really good drama. They have the tragedy and the comedy in there. I I've seen lots of dramedies, but none that did both of them. So extremely well, you are laughing and you're shocked. And obviously world war two happens in it. The world war two things happen in it and it was so good i our brother actually recommended it and i watched it and then i was mad at him afterwards that he did not prepare me for what this movie was it was it's a roller coaster and he just said oh it's so funny so i thought it was a comedy all the way through it the beginning is so funny i mean it's really funny and then it slowly you know the events of world war ii start to unfold uh, for Germany. And so then my, I told, was telling our other sister, our older sister, the oldest sister, Lisa, um, that I had just watched Jojo Rabbit. She said, well, did you like it? And I was like, I, I can't tell you. I can't say, I said, I definitely think you should watch it, but I, I will, I want to prepare you better than our brother did. So, you know, be prepared. And then months went by and she never like texted back that she'd watch it. So then I was afraid that I had warned her away from it too far but I was like no no no. but it it is so good it is it is a really good movie it's just something unlike you've ever seen so it's kind of shocking and so I just texted her a week ago and I was like did you ever end up watching Jojo Rabbit she was like oh my gosh this one part and I was like I know I know it's it's an ordeal the shoes yeah I don't want to give away too much the dancing shoes yeah, uh, I was on that text that text thread too. So um, all we had to say was the dancing shoes, uh, and all three all three of us knew exactly what that meant. Oh yeah, um, it's actually that's actually called an image system when an, in a movie when there is um, certain it's like, it's like a motif, but it's of images. Uh-huh. Um, the dancing shoes, shoes in general, tying shoes, you know people tying each other's shoes for them because one of Jojo's um, insecurities is that he's 10 years old and he doesn't know how to tie his own shoes. Um, his mom always has to tie his shoes for him. That becomes an important image system. Um, and then dancing is another image system in that movie. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. What's 
what's the first thing you'll do once, um, you know, Germany is free, once the war is over? Um, dance. You know, that's like a little throwaway line in, in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what got me at the end um, is seeing the two characters dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, because we'd been, we'd been prepared by the by the image systems and by the, the story itself and by the characters and the acting to really, really feel that moment. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was a good yeah, one. Yeah, so I, I broke my rule about not watching war movies um, because they affect me so deeply mm-hmm. to watch that, and uh, I'm not sorry. The funny thing is, in the pandemic, I've been, like, I cannot get enough war movies. I'm, I'm watching one after the other after the other, and my kids were making fun of me that I was turning into my dad because he watched a ton of war documentaries world war ii documentaries and it's yeah, not he was just a history history buff it's a huge history buff and i was i remember being like 10 years old and being like dad can we watch something else this was before the time of a tv in every room and on every phone so you have one tv he was watching a world war ii history documentary and i think it was like history world war ii week on the history channel and now i'm like I've, I've turned into my dad i cannot get enough of this but <laughs> i realized what was happening is that i was trying i'm i'm drawing strength from people who came before me to deal with the pandemic. Just that I'm like, I want to see some people who went through some really hard shit and I want to know that they were okay on the other side. And that that's the part I, I live for. If it's a world war two movie where everybody dies, I don't want to see that. I want to see, you know, they went through the really hard stuff. It was terrible. They got through it as a society, as families, as a community and that they, yeah. they, you know, some people survived, not everybody. But that's kind of reflective but, of what's actually happening. Not everyone's surviving the pandemic either. Yeah, we've lost more people to um, COVID nineteen now than we did in World War Two. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's um, it's. I can see, I can see how that would be. Um, that would be encouraging and um, sort of supporting your mental health in a way to see people going through really really hard things and really daunting odds and being able to overcome mm-hmm. because. You know. Yeah, it's the overcome. Yes. It's the overcome that is the best part for me. And it doesn't have to all be World War II. There's if if you guys want a good recommendation, if you're sort of like, yeah, I want to see some people overcome some difficult things, I have a recommendation which is on the Disney Channel or <laughs> sorry, that just showed my age of that I still call it the Disney Channel. Um, but it's Disney Plus and it's called The Finest Hours. It's not World War II, but it's a difficult situation. It probably happened right it happened right after World War II. It really happened. And I'd never heard of it before, but these people overcame these odds that were just, you know, astronomical. They all should have died and they all make it. So if you want to, if that's something that you're interested in, if that's, you know, a movie that you would like to watch, you can watch it with your kids. It's actually pretty sweet. Nobody dies. Um, So that's a spoiler alert, but, you know, it's a real historical event, so I can't really spoil it for you anyway, but... uh, That was a really good one. I actually watched that by myself. I need to watch that with my family because that was very... That was a good one to feel like, okay, we're human. We can Humans do can do hard we things. Can do we can do this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and one of the, I had uh, sort of a little um, rant, I guess you can call it, prepared for, um, to wrap things up with today's podcast. And and then I will give um, another recommendation as well. But, um, you know, we've been talking you and I have been talking about how our family members make fun of us because we're the weepy ones, you know, um, we are, we're emotional and, um, sometimes, um, sometimes it is a little embarrassing when, 
um, things get to you in in ways that in in, in you're in public, right? <laughs> um, uh, I I actually think you know in my in my middle aged stage of my life, I have come to believe that having um, the ability to feel things deeply in this way, especially things that are not happening to us personally, but are happening to characters in movies or in stories. Um, and to feel that so deeply that it actually moves us to have an emotional response like that is not a weakness, but kind of a superpower. Um, to be able to feel empathy, to um, to step into another person's shoes and to experience what they're experiencing and to really feel it like in your soul. Um, I think that that actually is one of the ways that um, I think that's actually quite helpful in terms of having a, a logical and rational outlook on life. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's a bit of a contradiction. It sounds like it's a, it's counterintuitive, but I think that empathy allows you to make good decisions in your life. Mm -hmm. The ability, some, sometimes it can be paralyzing, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's why Elle doesn't want to watch the, the movies about the animals dying. Cause she doesn't want to feel paralyzed, mm -hmm. you know, like yeah. she doesn't want to be so affected that it becomes debilitating. Mm -hmm. But, but, if you can um, experience the the um, the heartache or the triumph of another person, um, I think that it actually helps you to make good decisions that are rational and help more people than if you lack that ability. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so, totally. I think um, you know I'm a big Brene Brown fan, so I'm I'm going to try to quote her. It's not going to be exact, but. She says, we're not thinking machines that feel, we're feeling machines that think, meaning that the predominant, mm -hmm. that scientists have realized that we actually have a whole lot more emotions than we actually do thoughts. And thoughts can create emotions, but the prevailing feeling is emotion. How do you turn emotion into data? And how do you turn data into decisions? And how do you turn decisions into action? Um, that was me saying that last part. That was not Renee Brown. Her part was just that the thinking, good. the thinking machines, and yeah. I I agree. I think uh, a different person, people who let you know may not have as much empathy, are not called to you know they're not pushed to action. They can kind of separate yeah. themselves and say, well, that you know bummer for them, and that that'd yeah. be the end of it. Which honestly, sometimes I wish I could do more of because sometimes I feel so much I have to protect myself from reading too yeah. much or watching too much news or being too inundated in too many too many things that will pull up my empathy all at once and then I'll feel really drained which will also you know is paralyzing I don't I don't want to help anyone because I I there's too much I could never I can't help anyone if I'm paralyzed if you're overwhelmed overwhelmed yeah. yes yeah but like I was thinking that I was thinking about that in terms of you know um last week um Texas experienced a a deep freeze that um, knocked out their power grid and they went for almost a week. Millions of people in Texas went, went for almost a week without, without heat or, or water. Mm -hmm. They were like melting snow in their bathtubs in order to, to flush their toilets. Mm. They were, they were, um, you know, doing all kinds of things to try to stay warm. And, um, you know, one of their senators, Ted Cruz, uh, decided to go to Cancun. Mm -hmm. Um, for a vacation with his children and um yeah and and um when he you know he he, he a huge 
backlash against him. And when he realized, wait, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done this, he turned around and came back and he claimed that that was always the plan. But mm. that's, you know, none of none of the evidence supports that, that was the plan for him to come back straight away. But um, he, you know, he admitted like I that was not a good decision, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know what Ted Cruz reads. I don't know what he watches. I don't I don't I just I just have a feeling I have a hunch that he doesn't confront himself very often with um, stories that that create a lot of empathy, mm-hmm. um, because if he did, he would it, he would not have had to have thought about the fact that getting onto that plane and going to Cancun when millions of his constituents were freezing, some of them to death, mm-hmm. was a good idea, you know? Right, right. So, Abandoning his state in its very hour of need. Exactly. Yeah, it should have been a no, it should have been a no-brainer, really. Yeah, he did he not had... watch Jojo Rabbit and cry over the shoes. I, I'll tell you That's that right. much. That's right. That's right. He didn't. If you would text him the 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 words "dancing shoes" and "Jojo Rabbit," he would not know what that means. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, um, one more recommendation that I have um, is the, I it's on Hulu. It's called Nomadland. Um, a lot of people have already experienced it. It's by um, a Chinese director named Chloe Zhao, and um, it stars Frances McDormand as Fern, um, who is a character who is later in life she's a widow. She's a widow, and she decides to. Um, she doesn't really decide. It's kind of decided for her because the town that she lived and worked in for most of her life um, shut down because um, a gypsum, the gypsum mine that was keeping the town alive, closed. Gypsum mm. is used in making sheetrock. And so the entire um, town closed and um, she, and that's, a, that's based on a true story. And she becomes part of this um, no, nomadic people basically who, who live in their RVs and their campers and even their cars and travel around the country and um, are part of what's called camper force, which is Amazon's like part-time like um, workforce when they need help around the holidays. Um Anyway, it's very interesting. It's beautifully shot. Um, I'm seeing people either hate it or love it. I loved it. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of a combination of a of a fictional story about Fern and why she's doing what she's doing, and um, and a documentary because it features real people who are they call themselves van dwellers. Hmm. So it feature so it features real people. Chloe Zhao has has spent a lot of time interviewing these people. It's based on a book about. Um, modern day nomads in this Interesting. country. Interesting. We've piqued my interest on that one. So you watch Logan and then I'll watch No Man Land and then we'll confer. We've done this once before too and it didn't go well where she Mari and I, you know, we're kind of the ones in the in the family that we like the stories. If I watch something that's really emotional, really great, I'm Mari's my go to. I'm like, Mari, you've got to watch this. I have to like process it. So I need you to watch it so you can process it with me. The other thing that I was thinking about too was um how you got me into watching um game of thrones actually oh yeah um i started watching it i it was a couple of years after it came out after the hbo series came out i there was a lag time then when i started watching it maybe it might have been a year so i start watching it i watched the first season we all know what happens at the end of the first season ned stark who you think is your protagonist is beheaded um and and I remember texting you and like, what the hell? Yeah. Like, what's, like, what's going on? Like, he was our guy. Yeah. Like, I don't understand. And and you were like, Mari, 
you know, there are other people to root for. There will be other people to root for. And I was yes. like, I don't care. Yes. No, I threw a fit. I threw a fit. Um, it's well, funny because I got what they really... want you to feel. They they did that totally on purpose because I, I had the same feeling too. When Ned Stark dies, you're like, you know, you don't think he's going to die. Even at the last second, even when the axe is on his neck, you're like, they're... He's going to break away. He's going to make it. And then you're just in shock for like three yeah. days afterwards. You're like, what? Why am I even yeah. watching this? Why would you kill off the main character? Yeah. And then, you know, I got really, really into Game of Thrones, like maybe even obsessed with Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. I, be- I belong to this Me too. Like, Facebook group and we all got, we all went, we geeked out on it. And, um, and so I went back and watched the first season um, and I was, and, and my, my response to Ned Stark totally changed after I'd watched, you know, more of the, more of the series and went back and watched the first season, my response to his, well, to, to him and to his, um, demise, what totally changed because I was like, I was so frustrated with him as a character. I was like, get your daughters and get out of King's Landing. Mm-hmm. Like he's like packing up his scrolls and packing up his books, and then somebody comes in and talks to him, and you know, oh, never mind, we're not going to leave right now. I'm like, just leave, get out, you know, because mm-hmm. he's he doesn't do that. He's too naive. Um, he and you know, as we all know, G.R.R. Martin punishes the characters that are naive. Mm-hmm. Um, he he leaves his daughters in dire straits. You know, both Sansa and Arya are left without when he is when he is executed in terrible circumstances, both mm-hmm. of his daughters, they become stronger and they, they become, you know, they become their own protagonists of their own stories, but um, totally. But yeah, yeah that's, when a, you, when you're... that's another show that like, this is how I explain it to people is you have good people to root for. You have like people in between who are kind of good and bad. And then you have bad people who are so bad that you literally cannot think of a punishment bad enough for them. And then when they do get punished, you're like, ooh, I don't know that anyone deserves that. Like, he punishes yeah. them so bad, you're like, ooh, I don't, I never conceived of that. I don't know if he, they, they should have died that way. Yeah. Does anyone deserve that? Yeah. Even the, yeah. the people that you hate so much that you yourself could not conceive of a punishment bad Right. Right. But that's yeah, the beauty brutal. of it. And there were some good, I thought there were some good uh, redemption arcs in that Mm-hmm. in the series you know I'm, I'm a total sucker for a redemption arc you know people who have done bad things and 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 then own up to them and then go on a quest of sorts to redeem themselves mm-hmm. um you know I'm, I'm i'm you know that i think a lot of people would probably think that that those are pretty cheesy and and maybe not believable but i don't know i'm a sucker for those kind of stories yeah so that, so that those, are my, those are my those are my yeah, those are my themes. The underdog, yeah. the triumphs, even if the triumph is small and not meaningful for, you know, other people, it's meaningful for them. That's mm-hmm. my theme. And then also the redemption, the redemption arc. Redemption so. arc, totally. Yeah, and my, yeah. Hu- you know, my husband's theme is totally different than mine. It's totally, everyone's theme is totally different. My, my daughter's being vulnerability, that the killing off of vulnerability, of innocence, you know, that, uh, and my husband's is, uh, you know, going along with the Game of Thrones, not that he ever cried in Game of Thrones, but, you know, the Ned Stark character of, you had better take care of the people you love with all of your resources, and if you can't, then that's the worst thing that could, that could happen to you. So he was very into, he hated that Ned Stark died too, he, he was very angry with him, that he was so stupid, yeah. that he was to- totally naive. Yeah, I remember Bo having an adverse reaction to um, 
the pursuit of happiness as well. Oh, now that was his Vietnam. So that was his, that's like yeah. probably the worst movie he's ever seen to him. But to me, it was, you know, a cool story. It's a true story about this. Uh, he was basically homeless for a while. He was, This man, he's a real guy. I cannot think of his name at the moment. And his son in the movies played by Will Smith and Jaden Smith. Um, but he became homeless while he was trying to do an internship for a huge finance company. And if he won the internship, then he went on, he went on to make billions. But at that time in his life, he had no other resources and, um, they would have, so he would go to work, he would take his son to daycare and, um, at night they would sleep in a shelter, but you had to get in line for the shelter at at like 5 PM. And one day he had to work late and they didn't make it. And so he slept, they slept in a, a subway station bathroom and oh my gosh it was so funny too because it was like we had just had our daughter she was like six months old and this was our first date night so we had just had our daughter we had you know we were experiencing being parents for the very first time and all the responsibility and love that comes with that and we go and I had no idea what this movie was about and it was this movie about this man who could not take care of his son they were sleeping in a subway bathroom and he was keeping it closed with his leg someone was trying to to push it in to go use the bathroom and he was holding it closed with his hand and he will smith is just bawling i mean it gets to me too i'm not totally you know inoculated towards towards this either i'm also a parent but i look over at my husband in the theater and he is i thought he was having a heart attack i i remember grabbing him and being like are you having a heart attack and he was we were only like 25 but i thought he was like white and he was shaking and i was he was crying and i was like panic attack he was having a panic attack and i was like do you want to leave and he was like no no i don't i like I'll be okay. And I was like, oh my, oh my gosh, I, I had no idea this was going to affect him so bad. But that, I mean, that was his theme realized. That was like his worst nightmare on screen playing out for him in a father role. Yeah. Yeah, that's brutal. That's not a great, that's not a great uh, option for date night when you're, yeah. when you're leaving your six month old baby. <laughs> yeah, that was the worst. That was, that's literally his greatest fear is to not be able to take care of the people he loves. So the people who depend on him. The people yeah. who depend on him, yeah. So which yeah. is funny because he he does cry, and hopefully not too many people listen to the podcast because he would be upset with me if he knew if people knew. But he does shed a few tears in the movie Les Mes, um, when Marius is singing "Empty Chairs at Empty Tables." That all of his friends have died, and he has survivor's guilt. And my husband that that tears him down. My mm. part in the movie is when Fantine, uh, Fantine, is that her name? Fantine dies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Fantine, right? Yeah. She dies because, and that hits my theme, she pulls out her teeth, she cuts her hair, and it just wasn't enough. Obviously it was enough, but she didn't know that, and she basically gives her life to try and save her daughter Cosette. And oh yeah. man, that scene destroys me, and then we have the empty chairs, empty tables destroys my husband. That's our movie, like, if we want to have a cry fest, we'll watch that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, this has been really fun, Janae. Um, Thank you for being part of uh, Talking Stories. And um, hopefully we um, did some analysis to understand how the wizardry of these um, stories work in order to make us feel something, to to build our empathy, to help us to bond with one another. All right. Well, thank you, Janae, for being on Talking Stories. Yes. And um, we'll... I will definitely go watch Logan and we'll catch up with you with you soon. Alrighty. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Talkin' Stories. 
In my upcoming episode, my partner in crime of the chatty kind will be children's book author Jess Rinker. We'll be discussing her new picture book, Send a Girl, the true story of how women join New York City's fire department. Talking Stories is available wherever you listen to podcasts. 